good morning and welcome to Rising. I'm Amber Athey and I am back with Jessica Burbank to bring you another edition of Rising Friday. Good morning, Jessica. It's good to be back, Amber. Absolutely. We've got a lot of news to get into today. First, Hunter Biden has been indicted on three new federal gun charges by special counsel David Weiss. The president's son was charged with failing to disclose drug use when seeking to buy a weapon as well as unlawful possession of a firearm while addicted to a controlled substance. Hunter Biden's attorney, Abby Lowell, took to Good Morning America this morning to make his client's case, saying it will be likely dismissed before it reaches court due to the, quote, unconstitutionality of the statute. We've got an all-star panel joining us now to weigh in. Former Trump White House Associate Counsel and Vice President at Restoring Integrity and Trust in Elections, May Mailman, and former Biden White House aide and Democratic strategist, Michael LaRosa. Welcome to you both. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I want to start with you, Michael. What is Abby Lowell talking about when he says unconstitutionality of the statute? Is the Biden team going to defend Hunter on Second Amendment related grounds? No, I believe it was the Third and Fifth Circuit who have found the statute unconstitutional. So that's what he's referring to, um, that there are, I guess, no, it's it's put both parties in kind of an awkward uh, uh, irony, I guess, that um, one is fighting for limits on gun rights and the other isn't. May, I want to bring you in here as well. What do you make of this recent development? I mean, folks have been following the Hunter Biden case for quite some time. Uh, we thought they had reached this agreement that he wouldn't be prosecuted for this now he is being prosecuted for this. Does this put the attorneys in a position where they were not prepared to defend Hunter Biden and that's left them in kind of a predicament here? Yeah, I mean, there's awkwardness all the way around. And if I was Abby Lowell, I would not be counting on this statute being unconstitutional. But um, yeah, so as was exposed by the New York Times of all places that uh, the DOJ wasn't planning on bringing anything against Hunter Biden. And they were completely slow walking this. And then and then you had the whistleblowers come. So then they decided to bring a plea deal. And then the judge said this plea deal seems extremely bizarre. So then that broke down so that they decided to bring the lowest level charge. And we still don't actually know what they're going to do with the charge. A plea deal is still possible even after an indictment has been brought. There's no reason why he would be charged to the full extent of all three charges. Just the diversion of agreement, which means they weren't gonna bring it in the first place is done. So I do have a lot of questions about why they were dragging their feet. And I guess we'll never have answers to that from David Weiss because he's now been made a special counsel to insulate himself from himself. Um, so I, I guess we have to wait for the house to tell us what's going on here but I don't expect that the Department of Justice is gonna be entirely forthcoming because this is an ongoing case. Right, and May, if I can follow up on that, one of the issues with that plea agreement uh, just a, a month or so ago was that it had this clause that would essentially give Hunter Biden immunity from future charges related to the facts of the case, which could conceivably cover pretty much all of his business arrangements because it talked about his work at Burisma and with these other foreign companies. Is there any chance that something like that will try to be brought back by the DOJ prosecutors or is that completely dead, you think? 
I guess it depends on whether they think they can get away with it. And I think at this point, they probably think that they can't. And one of the, you know, Biden's DOJ was never going to bring big and scary charges. The fear was always that one day Biden is not going to be president. And how do we insulate Hunter Biden from that day? So, you know, that really will be the question. I don't expect for the Department of Justice to bring uh, foreign agents charges or anything much bigger than the gun case we see here. But will DOJ be able to sign some sort of agreement that will help insulate Hunter Biden in the future? And if they could do it, I think that they would. But but now that uh, now that the public is a little bit of aware of this, I actually don't expect for something that sweeping to be presented again. So, Michael, we saw uh, Corrine Jean-Pierre decide to walk away from the press briefing at the moment she was asked about Hunter Biden. Of course, we have this criminal case with Hunter Biden being processed by the Justice Department, but there's also the court of public opinion. And a lot of people are paying attention to the Hunter Biden case. What do you make of that move to simply not answer questions and walk out of the press briefing? Well, well, first, real quick, I just want to address one thing that I think we should clarify is that it is not the Biden Justice Department. Uh, this is the Justice Department, right? The prosecutor was appointed by Donald Trump. Uh, the case was opened by Bill Barr. It was investigated for three years prior to Joe Biden coming, uh, becoming president. If they weren't able to make a charge under Bill Barr and Donald Trump, I'm guessing they were probably never going to be able to keep making that case, no matter how long it drags out. Remember, this investigation, which most lawyers, every lawyer that I've seen on television has said would never, would never happen, would never have been opened if his last name wasn't Biden. Uh, let's just keep in mind that um, it has been now longer than the Monica Lewinsky and Whitewater investigation and all we can come up with are charges on a gun that have never, ever been prosecuted before. I think these charges were referred in Delaware in 2019. There were three of them. None of them were prosecuted. No charges were ever brought. So it's important for the public to know that. And it's important for the public to know that the people David Weiss was appointed by Donald Trump, was never prepared to charge Hunter with a crime. They had a signed agreement. They had a verbal agreement. In most instances, agreements are agreements when both sides agree they have one. I'm not a lawyer, but uh, as far as I know, when both sides say they have an agreement, you have an agreement. Um, as far as the public relations aspect goes, uh, look, the White House wants to keep distance uh, from the DOJ because there's an ongoing DOJ investigation. And unlike the last administration, they don't like to use their attorney general as their own personal lawyer. And that's exactly what that's the kind of integrity Joe Biden has brought back to the White House by keeping the Justice Department, no matter who they're investigating, <laughs> keeping on the Trump prosecutor, which I'm guessing to say if it, the shoe was reversed, President Trump, because we know he did this before, would fire a Biden appointed attorney general or a Biden appointed prosecutor. 
Michael, I want to push back on a couple of things that you said there. I mean, namely, you, you say that the investigation taking so long and only uncovering the gun charge is proof that there's no there there. But these IRS whistleblowers say that the investigation was intentionally slowed down so that the biggest charges would be beyond the statute of limitations and so that investigators would avoid following threads to the president himself. Do you think the IRS whistleblowers are just making that up? Well, two things. Uh, the senior investigator at the FBI said, actually, yes, they were. Uh, that, that never happened. Uh, David Weiss himself has actually said he had all the authority in the world. Well, he's changed his story, though. Uh, he, had he said he had the all latitude the authority. The then he, he had all the latitude he needed to bring charges. He himself wrote that in a letter to Congress. Um, all that's changed now, he has a different title bomb for a different title. But nothing, the facts of the case have not changed. Well, David Weiss has actually given different statements regarding how much authority he actually had to bring charges wherever he wanted to. He, yeah, you should read the letter. He, right. He said in the letter one thing, but then he's also stated that he was was told that he could ask for the, the authority, but he never did because he was under the impression that it wouldn't be given to him. He's given multiple different statements about this. But, May, why don't you respond to what Michael said as well? well it wasn't just David Weiss. It was the FBI as well. So we should be clear. It wasn't just David Weiss who said he was not hamstrung. The FBI uh, has also discredited the whistleblowers. And Hunter Biden's attorneys are suing the whistleblowers for potential violation of his rights as well. I don't think discredit the, is the right term. Yeah. The FBI has given a different statement. But May, why don't you go ahead and respond? Yeah, I wouldn't kind of say that the, the whistleblowers have been discredited. You do have two people who testified before Congress. And, um, you know, to say that two non-political, in fact, Democrat. Uh, oh, now now we like the bureaucracy. Do we like the bureaucracy now? Do we do we trust the swamp now? Oh, let her, let her so, finish. Let her finish. Right. Have testified before Congress, have said that there were six witnesses. Um, and then I don't know exactly why the special counsel status wasn't given. But what, if you do want a special counsel to figure out what's happening, who you don't want is David Weiss, right? You want somebody who actually has does not have some question around whether there's coordination uh, with the with main justice here, whether they actually are insulated. And I know we hear a lot about this was Trump's person, but we have to remember that this is Delaware. Delaware has two Democrat senators. Those senators are the ones that supported David Weiss. Delaware is a state that has been uh, run by Bidens for 50 years. I mean, President Biden was elected 50 years ago. So to say that this person is completely insulated from Biden influence is somehow some sort of Trump hack, I think is, uh, is going to be difficult for the American people to buy. Three years under Donald Trump's DOJ, three years. We know he fired U.S. attorneys all the time. When they were investigating him, he fired them. He could have fired David Weiss at any time. They could have replaced him with an even more Republican Republican. I don't know when it's going to be enough, really, to satisfy everybody's obsession with the president's son. Um, but millions of Americans pay taxes late, file late, pay penalties and interest. And so did Hunter Biden. And again, a gun charge that has never been prosecuted before. Well, this is based on multiple millions of dollars that are coming 
from foreign sources and the whistleblowers are saying that they're not even able to ask questions about some of it. So you do have some text messages saying that you need to give 10% for the big guy. The whistleblower said that they wanted to follow up on that and that they were not given that authority. Now, that might be true. They might be just making it up. Maybe they just went to Congress and made it up. I don't know why they would do that, but I think that you would have to answer that question. Why are these whistleblowers inventing stuff about the inability for them to prosecute this case as they say they would prosecute any case. Well, the IRS whistleblowers were not investigators, first of all. Burisma had nothing to do with the scope of the Justice Department's investigation. Absolutely nothing to do with that scope of the investigation. So you're right. They had no jurisdiction over anything that was coming into Hunter Biden's bank accounts from any place of employment. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. Well, the, as they say, the normal process is follow the money. We see a lot of money coming in. We don't know where it's going. And That's what, not what, what the scope would normally of the investigation is, was about. Follow the we, money. And they Burisma, were not Burisma was mentioned in the That's plea deal. So obviously it's part of this. And also, no, it's not. if, if no, you're. It's, no. Burisma no, it's was mentioned in the plea deal between the DOJ and Hunter it was Biden. Not part of the it, it was part of the, of the fact statement. And, and if you're looking at whether or not someone paid the right amount of taxes or failed to pay their taxes, you absolutely have the right to follow their income sources. We're going to have to leave this one here. We've got a lot more to talk about, and we'll continue you know, exploring what's going on with the Hunter Biden case, both with the House investigation and what's going on with these criminal cases. We've got more from this panel and more rising after this. New York Attorney General Letitia James's fraud case against Donald Trump is on hold for now. According to CNN, lawyers for the former president, his son Don Jr., and the Trump Organization requested the judge to slow down the civil trial, which is set to begin next month. They made the ask while the judge presiding over the case, Judge Arthur Ngoron, resolves a statute of limitations issue. Trump's legal team argues that some of the real estate transactions in question in the AG's $250 million fraud case are simply too old to be considered. In a statement about the pause, James wrote, quote, we are confident in our case and will be ready for trial. Meanwhile, Fulton County's District Attorney Fannie Willis on Wednesday insisted former President Trump and all of his co-defendants in the 2020 election interference case be tried together in October, but that request was denied. Fulton County Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee wrote in an order, quote, the court joins the skepticism expressed by several federal courts that denying severance always ensures efficiency, especially in mega trials such as this. Our rising panel is back with us to weigh in. Former Trump White House Associate Counsel and Vice President at Restoring Integrity and Trust in Elections, May Mailman, and former Biden White House aide and Democratic strategist Michael LaRosa. They both join us now. Welcome to you both. May, I'll start with you on the question of the timing of these trials. Obviously, Trump is having to prepare a defense in four different uh, indictment cases now. So how is his team getting along with trying to argue for the delaying on several of these cases to make sure that he has time to prepare? Yeah, so on the Georgia case, I think an October trial date was I mean, even the, the judge in Georgia basically laughed when the, the request came in to try all 19 co-defendants together. There, uh, you know, the, 
even just the investigation, getting the grand jury has taken several years. They weren't uh, bringing that before the grand jury the entire time. But to say that now we're going to kind of ram this through in October was always going to be unrealistic. When is that trial actually going to land? I don't know. Will there be extensions? Probably once it lands, maybe there's going to be a lot of pretrial motions, even the trial dates that have been set. You have Sidney Powell being tried with Ken Chesbro. These people were involved in widely different aspects of what's being alleged here. You've got in investigations into voting machines versus memos about uh, stolen electors. So I can anticipate that they're not going to be happy about that, trying to separate their trial dates from each other. So I don't actually know when all this is going to land. I do think it's all going to be later than we expect, just the sheer number of documents, the sheer number of legal issues. Um, but obviously, President Trump's lawyers are going to be working to push this uh, till after the election. And I would expect that they're going to be successful on at least some of those trials. This is a really unique political situation for the year leading up to the midterm election for President Biden. What do you make of this, Michael? We have a situation where Donald Trump is out on bail facing many indictments. I think over 90 is the total count. And then you have Biden, who's also serving in public office, still trying to get some of the policies that were on his electoral platform passed. Uh, what do you make of what the Biden administration is doing to message around the Trump trials? And what do you think we can expect from the administration in this year leading up to 2024? Uh, well, two two different questions. I'll start with the how they're reacting to the Trump legal drama, and I don't know if they are reacting very much. And and frankly, I don't know if they need to. Um, at this point, the cake is pretty baked on Donald Trump. You, you, the people who love him are going to keep loving him no matter what crimes he's accused of. Um, it really won't matter. Frankly, you know he was impeached and people still voted for him. Um, so I don't know if it, it's a good use of time to be messaging around all of Donald Trump's legal drama. The media is kind of taking care of that for them. Um, and like I said, the, the, the numbers aren't really moving uh, for Donald Trump and they probably won't. The one thing we do know um, from the last three elections um, in 2018, 2020, and 2022, is that independents, independent voters want nothing to do with the guy. Um, so in, in that way, I don't think, I also don't think that changes either. So um, I think the cake is baked. I think if it's a rematch, I think it's going to be extremely close, like it was last time. Um, but given the data we have, that we all have, and the patterns and trends that exist, it's hard to see uh, an environment in which independents all of a sudden are attracted to um, Donald Trump, given that his crimes have just become, uh, you know, more apparent than they were when he was in the White House. Yeah. What's your reaction, Michael, to the fact that Biden and Trump are basically sitting at the same approval rating, even as the media is hammering Trump about these indictments? Not good. I mean, it's hard to argue with that, right? Yeah. Uh, I think James Carville was the one that said, like, there's no way getting around it. It's very concerning. 
it's a report card. But you know what? The grade that you get this week is not going to be the grade that you get a year from now. Look, it's going to be come down to two people, two human beings. We both know that we everybody knows who they are. Um, the good news is there's not much to hide. Um, again, I don't think the dial really moves much from a political or electoral perspective, um, unless for some reason Trump is not the nominee. I think it will be uh, worse for, for President Biden. I think he will have an uphill battle um, against anyone but Donald Trump. May, there was a lot of pushback from folks on the Democratic side about the messaging around the 2020 election and how this would affect potential voter turnout in the future for folks who believe our electoral process is in shambles and the election was stolen. Uh, I kind of think that it will impact who turns out Trump supporters uh, for him in 2024, who now believe that the electoral process in the United States is not legitimate, is not valid. Do you foresee that turnout problem really affecting Trump's ability to win or get the vote either in the primary or in the general? Well, the polling definitely shows what you're talking about. So as far as trust in the election outcome, you see in general, Americans do trust it, but that's driven almost entirely by Democrats, you know, 80, 90 percent trust levels versus for Republicans, something like 40 to 50 percent. Uh, so a huge, you know, change in in what people think about what's coming out of our elections. And there's kind of this crap in, crap out feeling that you have with our elections where do we trust the mail? Do we trust signature matching? Um, if, if so much is happening without poll watchers, how do we feel about that? Um, th these types of things. And so you can do one of two things. You can say, hey, President Trump, you need to stop messaging that it's bad and that's going to help Republicans. Or you can do, you know what, actually, Americans do believe in voter ID at 88 to 90 percent rates, kind of depending on which poll you're looking at. Maybe we should implement some of these election integrity measures that people like that are popular and will help give people confidence in elections. So Republicans do have this problem, but I think it's a solvable problem that you could actually address with very popular, very reasonable measures that would basically bring elections in line with what kind of my experience was, what feels like yesterday, where you show up to the poll box, you present your ID, you vote and you go home, you know, something, something as wild as that. Yeah, we also see uh, the Republican Party apparatus kind of embracing some of these mail-in vote type schemes and, and maybe even ballot harvesting to try to fight the, uh, the, the uh, new rules that were put in during COVID. We see the RNC with the Bank Your Vote program and the Virginia Republican Party with Secure Your Vote. So trying to, I guess, play with the new system as it were. But we have to leave it there. Thank you both for joining us, May Mailman and Michael LaRosa. We'll see you again soon. More Rising after this. Nearly 1,300 auto workers walked off the job today in what is expected to be the biggest strike United Auto Workers Union has ever staged, simultaneously hitting Detroit's big three, General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis. Workers in plants located in Michigan, Ohio, and Missouri are on the picket line amid a contract dispute, demanding a 40% increase in pay, pensions, and better work hours. 
Though not all 150,000 UAW members have walked out, a union, leader, union leaders have said a work stoppage could expand if talks remain stagnant. Meanwhile, Ford CEO balked at the UAW's demands. Here he is on CNBC. Let's watch. If we signed up for the UAW's request, instead of making money and distributing $75,000 in profit sharing in the last 10 years, we would have lost $15 billion and gone bankrupt by now. There's no way we can be sustainable as a company. That's why we put our proposal in two weeks ago to say, look, you want, you want us to choose bankruptcy? over supporting our workers. Here's our proposal. Let's work through this. We've heard nothing. The UAW alleges Farley made a whopping $21 million just last year. President Biden will address the historic strike in hours to come. I guess we're going to see if Biden really is the most pro-labor president in American history. I don't know how I feel about that. I'm leaning on probably not. It's probably still going to be FDR considering how he handled the rail workers strike. But the position the auto workers in is so unique because they took a bunch of concessions uh, when they didn't have to in 2008 so that the industry wouldn't collapse. They said, OK, we understand we're in a tough spot. We have this recession. We'll take a pay and benefits cut so that the industry stays above water. And since 2008, auto workers wages have steadily declined, whether you're in manufacturing or you're in more of the front of the shop. But if you're working for an automaker, we've seen wages decline 10 to 19 percent. And we're seeing record profits and CEOs giving themselves pretty large salaries. And so it seems very fair to me to negotiate with these workers and at least let them recover the wages that they've lost over the last 10 plus years. Yeah, I think that's right. 40% is maybe a high starting point, but that's kind of how negotiations go. If you look at polls with the American people, 79% are on the side of the UAW workers versus 19% or so on the side of the bosses or the CEOs of these companies. But there's a lot of policy problems related to the auto industry right now as well, um, one of which is just the fact that so much of the manufacturing has gone overseas in the past couple of decades. One of the things that Trump did when he was in office was he tried to bring some of the uh, parts back to at least North America. Some of them are now being produced in Mexico as opposed to in China or Korea or Japan. Um, so that was a good first step, but there's still too much of the automaking process that is done overseas. Workers in America now have a very small stake in the finished automobiles that are being sold from these big three companies, which reduces their bargaining power as well, and obviously um, reduces the number of people that these auto companies are going to hire. And then from the Biden administration, you have this job-killing electric vehicle mandate where they're trying to make sure that 50% of all new vehicles sold by 2030 are going to be EVs. Well, EVs not only reduce the amount of labor required from auto workers, they're also more expensive to produce. They're more expensive for the consumer, so fewer people are willing to buy them. And there's all of these problems with the, their ability to be charged, the cost of the batteries, the manufacturing of the batteries, which requires mining in Africa, where China controls all of the mines. So for Biden to say that he's the most pro-labor president and then introduce all of these regulations on the auto industry, which is already struggling immensely in the U.S., just is so backwards and contradictory. Yeah, I mean, when we look at the profits between 2013 and 2022 of the big three, 
we see that they're up 92%. So looking at GM, Ford, and Stellantis, 92% for them means a, a combined $250 billion in total. So when you see profits being up 92%, wages have declined 19% for workers in the, in the warehouses, manufacturing the vehicles. When you look at those making the parts, they're declining about 10%. But profits being up 92%, they can actually very easily afford this 40% raise in compensation to the workers. And so to have these CEOs, we just saw the, the CEO of Disney also say that the demands are ridiculous, something along those lines for, for the workers there for the, the SAG-AFTRA strike. Now we have another situation where they're like, this is ridiculous. They're asking for so much. But if we just look at the data, it's very clear that they can afford this. And it's simply like greed that's getting in the way of them not compensating their workers. When you see that a lot of that money is going to the executives, they're deciding to compensate themselves much more. They're not in, even investing a majority of their profits in transitioning to renewable energy. If they're reinvesting their revenue in the company and in development of EVs, I'd be like, okay, well, at least the money's going somewhere that's like kind of good. We're transitioning towards renewable energy, towards a green economy, but it's not going to the workers. It's not going to renewable or green energy. And so it's a ridiculous scenario where now they're making the workers seem greedy for asking for the bare minimum when we've seen the cost of living go up so much in the country. So hopefully Biden says something along the lines of supporting the workers in this case today. I think we're all waiting on that Biden speech. Yeah, definitely. And he said just a short while ago that he didn't think that the UAW strike was going to happen. That was on Labor Day. And then sure enough, he was proven wrong. Um, clearly, he doesn't have his finger on the pulse of the American worker. And it's not surprising, given how much his administration has tried to downplay the economic concerns of average Americans. They've been unwilling to acknowledge that inflation is a real problem. They're trying to run his 2024 campaign on the concept of Bidenomics. Um, he has admitted recently that the Inflation Reduction Act was not really about reducing inflation and that he regrets the name of it because it was really about imposing a new climate agenda and spending on things like planting trees and and things like this electric vehicle mandate and all of these other um, environmental policies and not really trying to reduce inflationary pressure on Americans. And uh, his, his, uh, his spokespeople have repeatedly condescended to people who do express that they're having a difficult time paying for their lives and for their families. I mean, Jen Psaki, just a couple of years ago from the press podium, dismissed concerns about supply chain issues as the tragedy of the treadmill that's delayed when people were un unable to get access to baby formula. And then you had uh, Pete Buttigieg and uh, Secretary Granholm just scoff at people who were concerned about gas prices by telling them to buy $60,000 electric vehicles. So they're clearly completely out of touch with the reality of the economic situation that people in this country are facing. Yeah, I think there are some aspects of the Inflation Reduction Act that would definitely reduce inflation. But in the long run, I think if they were going to take an approach to reduce inflation in the short run, they would have had to negotiate with grocery stores. They would have had to negotiate with oil companies. They would have had to talk with Wall Street about the speculative bets that were driving up oil prices when people were betting on oil futures being on the rise when 
COVID was definitely a factor in making the, the energy market extremely unstable because you had many people hedging the market trying to see, well, if there's another variant that hits and the price of a barrel of oil goes to zero, what do we expect the price of oil to be? Essentially treating the economy like some kind of, like, and the stock market, like some kind of casino. It's kind of ridiculous uh, what Wall Street is getting away with and the consequences for everyday Americans when they're just betting on making money on what the price of oil will be and accurately predicting it. There are people who cannot feed their families when the price of, of gas goes up because they have to get to work every day to keep their job and their income stream. So they could have done some things to address those immediate needs. But instead, this approach that they took, right, they decide, okay, well, energy is going to get very expensive in the future. If we are to transition to renewable energy, energy costs will go down, but it's in the very long run. And we really needed something from the administration to address those immediate costs that were hurting families in America and still are. And I think that's why the Bidenomics just isn't landing, because the average person isn't thinking in advance. The average person in the United States cares about putting food on the table over the next week and making rent. And so I just think that the policy misses on behalf of the Democrats just come from a lot of them and a lot of people in politics in general, just exactly like you said, not having uh, their finger on the pulse when it comes to working people, because maybe they don't have a lot of working people in their administration. I think if we see this go really badly for the Biden administration, it's because they're incredibly out of touch because we've seen pretty homogenous support for the United Auto Workers among everyday people. And so they might just not have a lot of everyday people in their cabinet if we see them side with the auto manufacturers on this one. Yeah, I think that's right. And you make a good point about the short-term costs of these policies because if you're looking at trying to get food on the table, you're not thinking, okay, in 2060, wind energy or wind power will finally be uh, you know, cheap and, and abundantly available. We'll have figured out the power grid system as well. That's, uh, that's the last thing of, of, that people should have to worry about when it comes to heating and cooling their homes and, and, and other you know, needs uh, uh, related to energy. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Former President Donald Trump would not even think of preemptively pardoning himself before leaving office in 2021. At least that's what he told NBC anchor of Meet the Press Kristen Welker in an interview set to air this coming Sunday. Let's watch. The last thing I'd ever do is give myself a pardon. I could have given myself a pardon. I was told by some people that these are sick lunatics that I'm dealing with. Give yourself a pardon, your life will be a lot easier. I said I would never give myself a pardon. Even if you were reelected? in this moment? Well, I think it's very unlikely. What, what did I do wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. Trump, who's facing 91 felony charges, chalked it up to nothing more than a witch hunt. Trump also sat down with former Fox anchor Megyn Kelly in her Sirius XM show, in which she pressed him on classified documents that were in his possession after he left the Oval Office. He contended being protected by the Presidential Records Act. Let's listen. What were you waving around in that meeting? Because it certainly sounds like I'm not like going to talk to you about that because uh, that's already been, I think, very substantiated, and there's no problem with it. It hasn't been substantiated. Jack Smith says Megan, it was let the me just tell you. Let me and just you told Brett Barrett. Let me people. tell you. Here we go again. I'm covered by the Presidential Records Act. I'm allowed to do what I want to do. I'm allowed to have documents. 
So I don't know if his text messages reflect that same line of thinking uh, where he said, I guess it's too late. You know, we didn't declassify them. So this is a tough issue for him because he keeps talking about it with the press. I don't know. I think a smarter decision legally would be whenever it's brought up, you know, this is a pending legal matter. I'm not going to talk about it. But I think maybe some people would suggest that means he's guilty. So it puts him in a tough position. But hearing him constantly go back and forth on this one issue makes me feel like it might not go his way in a court of law if all of this stuff is admissible. It definitely would be smarter to maybe just stop talking about it and let the legal team handle it. And this is a lot of people's frustration with Trump is that he does not really have message discipline. He kind of just says whatever's at top of mind. And it's it's a love and hate thing, right? Because people loved it in 2016 when he was willing to say the quiet part out loud on issues like immigration and workers' rights and reshoring American manufacturing. But when he gets into other issues that potentially damage and distract from those messages, it starts to get incredibly frustrating. And in this case, we're talking about indictments, charges, things that uh, could possibly land him in prison. Do I think that's going to happen? Um, probably not as much as the Democrats do. But in this case, when he's talking about this Iran document, there's so many moving parts legally here. For one, this document was not brought in the original round of the 31 charges from Jack Smith in the documents case. And it was suggested to CBS when they ran a report on that, that it was because the DOJ could not find that document or they didn't have access to it. All they had was the clip of Trump talking about waving something around in front of people and, uh, and admitting uh, apparently that he had the opportunity to declassify whatever it was in his hand, but that he didn't. He since told Fox News's Brett Bayer that it was simply a collection of news clippings and news articles. And then Jack Smith brings the new uh, level of charges, including an additional indictment on the Iran document. So did they find it between the first round and now? It's kind of unclear. But what's interesting is that in the indictment, they refer to it as a presentation as opposed to a document or a plan because the uh, the suggestion has been that this was actual uh, war plans drawn up in case the United States were to go to war with Iran. And now it's being referred to as a presentation. So I'm curious to know exactly what that means and how this will come about uh, in terms of the evidence when we actually get into the trial here. Yeah, it's really interesting to see him go back and forth with Megyn Kelly on a lot of things that went down during his presidency and immediately afterwards. You have a lot of Fox News hosts that I think used to be more on Trump's side than they are now. Maybe the lawsuit facing Fox News had something to do with it. But seeing Megyn Kelly on a Sirius XM show sit down with Donald Trump, seeing Tucker Carlson sit down with an independent interview, it seems to me that they're getting more into the, the meat of things than they were in traditional media. And so I think that's good to see Trump actually ask some hard questions by Megyn Kelly here. Yeah, I will say Trump has never been afraid of talking to unfriendly media Megyn Kelly and him, of course, notoriously went at it in one of the debates in 2015, where he gave that line about blood coming out of her whatever. They've since sort of rekindled their relationship, I guess you could say. They're on friendlier terms now. But that doesn't mean that she's going to sit there and give him a softball interview either. That's just not who Megyn Kelly is. Um, if anything, I think Tucker maybe is a little friendlier. But even then, these people are approaching Trump from the right. They're looking at him and saying, whatever you did wasn't conservative enough, like on the Fauci question. 
For example, Megyn Kelly grilled Trump on his handling of COVID while commander-in-chief, which he applauded himself for, but claims he got no kudos for. Let's watch. You know, they appreciated what I did with the economy. I got a lot of good marks on economy. I got a lot of good marks on a lot of things. Rebuilding the military, getting rid of ISIS, uh, the biggest tax cuts in history. Uh, Supreme Court. I never got, I think, the credit that I deserve on COVID. Asked why he failed to fire then White House Chief Medical Advisor Anthony Fauci and instead elevated him to be the face of the coronavirus task force, this is what he said. You made him a star. You made him a star. This is the criticism of you, that you made him the face of the White House coronavirus task force. You think force, so? That he was at every presser, that he was running herd for the administration on COVID, and that you actually gave him a presidential commendation before you left office. Wouldn't you like a do-over on that? Uh, I don't know who gave him the commendation. I really don't know who gave him the commendation. Presidential commendation. One went off the mark. Somebody Miller, probably... On his last day in office, Trump did indeed award presidential commendation to Fauci for his efforts on Operation Warp Speed to get those COVID vaccinations out. So I think Trump does a few things that are very interesting uh, that I think a lot of presidents do, but he's very transparent about it, where when asked about the deficit and government spending, when Biden was in office, he says things like the debt is out of control, they absolutely have to cut spending uh, and manage the budget differently. But when he was in office, he was very quick to increase the national deficit and very quick to authorize government spending and corporate tax cuts. And when asked about this, he simply said, well, that was different because I was president then. Uh, <laughs> kind of so, an iconic uh, line, only a bad guy? <laughs> what was that? Kind of iconic, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's a funny approach because there are a lot of people in public office that do the exact same thing but are not as transparent about it, where they criticize the opposition for doing something they've done. But I think in the case of Anthony Fauci, I don't know, is he only a bad guy when Biden is president? It was a good question from Megyn Kelly. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's one of the things that, of course, differentiates him and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. They sort of got into it over that, uh, where Trump claimed that DeSantis has been lying about his covert record, that Florida was shut down for um, a month, as Megyn Kelly pointed out, um, which was a little bit longer than some other states like Georgia and South Dakota. But on the whole, I think most people would agree that DeSantis handled COVID better than Donald Trump, at least from a conservative perspective. And Trump is kind of trying to rewrite history. But what Trump did, I think, was smart, um, was that in the beginning of the campaign, before uh, DeSantis even announced, he brought up the COVID issue and started raising these questions about DeSantis's record, which I think kind of neutered that issue in a lot of ways. It's good, though, to see Megyn Kelly bringing it up again, um, because I think people would like to hear Trump say, yeah, I, I kind of got this one a little bit wrong, and if it happened again, I would do it differently. But that's not really something that Trump has shown he's capable of doing. I also want to give myself credit because I was, I think, the first person in media to ask Trump why he did not fire Dr. Anthony Fauci. This was back in October of 2021, and this is what he told me then. He said, well, he's been there for 40 years or something. He's like a fixture. And I basically did, for the most part, the opposite of what he was saying. He was totally against masks, and then he became a radical masker. And I was uh, very strongly opposed to masks. He w was very much against closing the country to China to, and to Europe. And I very, very early did both. And he will admit 
that we saved thousands and thousands of lives doing that. And so he's kind of taken this approach several times since where he claims, well, I couldn't fire him because he had been there for so long, he was a bureaucrat, or I couldn't fire him because I would have taken too much flack from the media. And it just doesn't pass muster because he was more than willing to fire people like Jim Comey. He was um, actually seeking to reform the ability to fire uh, longtime government officials and employees in his second term if he were to win. And he is someone who is constantly receiving 90 to 95 percent negative media coverage. So the idea that he would suddenly care about that when it came to Dr. Fauci is pretty odd. Yeah, it's odd the way that DeSantis and Trump handled the COVID issue, because at the very beginning, Trump was for the vaccine, calling it the Trump vaccine. At the beginning, I went into Florida within the first two months of the COVID pandemic, and I had gotten stopped at the border to Florida and had gotten checked up by, I don't know, Florida state officials, not sure what department they were in. They had flashlights, the vehicles went through a series of tents, you had your temperature taken, you had to fill out, fill out a series of paperwork, you had to show that you didn't test positive for COVID uh, and sign a document to promise that there wasn't a chance you had COVID-19 or contact with someone who did. It was a really lengthy process. I passed through every state between New York and Florida and Florida was the only one where I encountered that under the DeSantis governorship. And so I think the way that they've switched up according to what the Republican base would like their COVID response to be is really interesting to me. Because on the one hand, you say, okay, this was an elected official meant to represent the people. They've changed how they're governing according to what public opinion is. But was it majority public opinion? Was it just their base of voters? That's another concern there. But to me, the switch up feels dishonest. And while it's iconic of Trump to, you know, <laughs> say it's fine when he's in office and it's not fine when other people do it, is it good policy making? Is it what we really need as a country? And I'm kind of on the side of no there. I do think Trump has a point when he says or sort of justifies his initial handling of COVID by saying, you know, nobody knows what it was. The uh, government officials who were in charge of the public health response didn't even really know how this thing was spreading or what it was. I think that's a fair criticism. There were a lot of people, especially on the conservative side, who initially said, yes, we should do the 15 days or whatever. But once we got beyond that, it was too much. And, and so he does have a point on that fact, I think. We'll be back with more Rising after this. The Biden administration has reopened a housing facility to migrant children in Texas, a facility that was previously at the center of reports of poor living conditions, two U.S. officials told CBS News. The United States Department of Health and Human Services facility, a former camp for oil workers in Pecos, Texas, stopped housing migrant children this spring. But the site has reopened, calling itself an influx care facility amid a hike in border arrivals, which has led to a decreasing bed capacity in traditional shelters. The facility, which is currently able to house 500 migrant adolescents, welcomed a group of minors this week, according to one of the officials. The Department of Health and Human Services told CBS News, quote, while the Office of Refugee Resettlement's number one priority is to place children into standard care provider facilities, access to influx care facility capacity remains necessary to ensure that ORR can promptly accept referrals when ORR's other network facilities reach or approach capacity. 
With this in mind, the state of the ICF at PECOS has changed from warm status to active status and is currently accepting children. So this is something that Kamala Harris was supposed to be in charge of as vice president. Uh, we've discussed this on the show before, but I think that what's going on with migration under the Biden administration is very different from what any Democrat was talking about on the campaign trail in 2020. They talked about having no adolescents or minors at the border whatsoever and that we need to end these detention facilities. Now they're kind of framing the same exact facility as a processing center. So to me, it seems that we've had little to no movement on migration. And this conversation should be more about a path forward than what do we do immediately with the migrants crossing the border? Where do we put them and how do we process them? We need forward thinking policy on this and we're not getting it. Yeah, it's clear to me that the Biden administration is sort of with uh, or having a, a tale of two approaches here, because as you said, during the Trump administration and during the campaign in 2020, Biden was constantly calling Trump's immigration policy inhumane non-compassionate. There was all of this talk about kids in cages, which of course started under the Obama administration and has been going on since as early as Bush. Um, but then Biden has changed all of these policies that helped reduce the flow of migration, that helped clear out a lot of these facilities and prevent the overcrowding that was the subject of so many complaints. So you really can't have it both ways. Biden either needs to address the flow and reduce the number of illegal aliens who are coming across the border each month so that these facilities don't get over capacity and so he doesn't have to reopen the centers that have been criticized for their conditions. Or he needs to, I guess, admit that he wants a more open borders policy and consequences be damned. Yeah, it seems to me that framing the economic problems of the country, the way that the mainstream has, this is both, you know, traditional Republicans and these kind of centrist Democrats or rather neoliberal Democrats. There's this belief, thanks to the Fed and others, that we have a too hot of a labor market right now, that there are too many jobs and too few workers and nobody wants to work uh, is also a trope that they've said. That cannot be true while also we have this problem of an influx of migrant workers. Um, if that really is the case, that these two things are a problem at once, perhaps we just need a way to process migrants so that they can work in the United States. It seems to me that's a pretty straightforward policy proposal, especially when we think about the global economy as is. We have a lot of jobs leaving the United States. We have some jobs staying in the United States. But when we think about how we're hiring foreigners overseas, the same multinational corporations based in the United States, and we also have workers coming across the border, when we think about the global flow of migration, we can integrate our economies in that way. And that's something that I know a lot of Republicans are not totally on board with, but it will help balance the global economic system if we process the folks coming in and integrate them into the formal economy, especially if the problem is that these folks are drug dealers and criminals. If we don't allow them an opportunity to integrate into our formal economy, they'll grow our informal economy because they have no choice other than to find a way to feed their families and themselves. And so I think there's some policy proposals on that, but that seems to be the direction this needs to go in if we're going to avoid catastrophe. Yeah, I definitely want to dig more into the economic concerns regarding this flow of migration because New York Governor Kathy Hochul 
Hochul, excuse me, is reportedly considering an unprecedented work authorization for migrants amid the spike in influx. And she said she spoke about this during her visit to the White House last month and added that she might do something at the state level and that this would be unprecedented. According to ABC, a senior administration official said during a call with reporters, there's a critical mass that we are confident are eligible to apply for work authorization immediately. But Hochul clapped back, saying, I don't know what a critical mass is. I don't think it's a high number. A few weeks ago, Hochul called on President Biden to take action and allow migrants to work. Let's watch. Our quest continues to squarely tell the White House, let them work. Until that happens, we'll continue to need funding and sites from the federal government to help cover the massive, massive expenses of sheltering tens of thousands of people in our country and our state today. But also, all. Crane Jean Pierre was pressed about why Biden did not meet with Hochul over the migration crisis during her visit to the White House. But when the governor of New York came by yeah. to discuss a very urgent matter in the state of New York and across the country, a lot of big cities, he did not meet with her. Why not? Well, look, as you just stated, there's a lot going on, and uh, his chief of staff. Met, uh, met, uh, was part of that meeting. I believe uh, Secretary Mayorkas was part of that meeting. Uh, some of his very high-level senior staff participated in the meeting with the governor, which is, as you said, a very important meeting to have. He has uh, has a very good relationship with the governor. We've been every time we're in New York, uh, the president uh, in practically every time uh, the president engages with the governor. So they have a very good relationship. Look. Um, uh, the president has a lot of it on his plate. Uh, as you said, this is an important uh, uh, important issue as well. But when you have the chief of staff, uh, when you have the secretary of Homeland Security there meeting uh, with the governor, I think that shows how important the president thought this meeting was. So I think that having a few folks in the administration meet with Governor Hochul, but not Biden when this is a pressing issue, just I wish the response was this is what he was handling instead. Some kind of transparency from the administration here. What meeting was he in that was more important than this one? That seems to me uh, the answer that would quell any discontent that Biden didn't meet with Hochul about the migration crisis. But I think maybe it's just that Karine Jean-Pierre is not being properly prepped for her press briefings, especially this controversy where she walked out when asked about Hunter Biden uh, and kind of how standoffish these press briefings have, have been. Maybe I, I shouldn't fault her because maybe it's something on the administration side that they're not giving her the information needed to answer the press's questions. I'm not sure what's going on here. You may be right. There was a Washington Post article that came out back during the Biden classified document scandal where Karine Jean-Pierre was caught at the podium saying that there was an additional search of Biden properties and that no new documents had been found when, in fact, they actually had been found. And there was a suggested suggestion in the Washington Post reporting that basically Karine Jean-Pierre is not really a trusted member of the administration. She hasn't been brought in on these senior meetings. She hasn't been a part of the decision-making process at all. And so that leads to her being ill-prepared at the podium. And it's sort of a chicken and the egg situation. Do they not bring her in because she's bad at preparing or is she bad at preparing because they don't bring her in? And it's kind of funny to hear this response on the immigration issue with Governor Hochul 
considering that there was just this Vogue profile of Corinne Jean-Pierre, where they talked about how amazingly prepared and fact-based she is when coming into these briefings and basically fawning all over her. We also have heard that there's a lot of consternation among Democrats with Mayor Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, complaining about the influx of migrants coming in there and their inability to properly house them and take care of them. Instead of having some self-awareness and saying, OK, maybe we need to deal with this problem, the Biden administration has responded by essentially shaming Eric Adams for trying to protect his citizens that he is representing and has decided that the easier solution is to just send the migrants back to Texas, which is only going to lead, of course, to more overcrowding of facilities. I want to go back for a second as well to this economic issue, um, because as you mentioned, you're right. They're claiming that this is a hot labor market. Um, but if that's the case, I think our priority should be allowing American workers the opportunity to finally enjoy and negotiate for a wage increase that's long overdue, given uh, the cost of living increases over the past 10 to 20 years, and basically make sure that the American worker is being compensated fairly for their time, that they're having proper work conditions. Instead, what Hochul is suggesting and what the Biden administration is suggesting by giving a bunch of migrants work authorization is allowing migrants to essentially serve as scabs for workers that are trying to advocate for better positions um, from uh, you know, American citizens. Yeah, and it's definitely not a right or, or left administration issue because you have Jerome Powell, who is the Trump appointed chair, chair of the Fed, who has stayed in office, uh, who's responsible for saying we've got to do something about the hot labor market. We've got to raise interest rates. This is the chief problem when it comes to calling price instability and to get inflation under control. We've got to increase interest rates so that the economy cools off a little bit. Uh, this kind of policymaking goes on whatever administration we've had over the last half of a century. The 1970s were the last time workers enjoyed proportionate compensation with productivity growth in the economy. Since the 1970s, we've seen those metrics diverge. We've seen wages decline while productivity has increased exponentially. And so that's a big problem when we see corporations reaping the profits and the benefits of this by design economy that benefits the, the wealthiest in the country, the owners of corporations and the shareholders while workers, while being more productive, are being paid less and less and now struggling to get by. And so we see this as a problem with Republican and Democratic administrations. And I think this is why you have 40% of the American people not voting in elections. This is why you see a lean for a third party in the United States right now. And this seems to be the one issue that if a candidate talks about it and takes it seriously, they will win public office, whether they're running for governor or mayor of New York, or I think the presidency, if they make this the central focus of their campaign. Yeah, I think we can address inflation, but also acknowledge that workforce participation is too low that more people need to be going to work and need to be getting real wages that can support a family. And, and we should be able to address both of those issues at the same time. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is calling on grocery store heads to stabilize food prices while Canadians struggle to put food on the table. It's not okay that our biggest grocery stores are making record profits while Canadians are struggling to put food on the table. So Minister Champagne will be calling on the heads of large grocers to come to Ottawa with a plan to address the rising cost of food. 
And we expect to hear from them by Thanksgiving on what their plan is to stabilize prices. And let me be very clear. If their plan doesn't provide real relief for the middle class and people working hard to join it, then we will take further action and we are not ruling anything out, including tax measures. California Democrat Katie Porter has commended the job President Joe Biden has done on the economy. Let's watch. President Biden has done a terrific job on the economy. And I think this is a matter of just people wanting to, to sort of dream up what they could imagine um, for different kinds of candidates at this point. But the truth is Joe Biden has a terrific story to tell on the economy. But a new Suffolk University Sawyer Business School and USA Today poll finds that Americans trust former President Donald Trump more than Biden when it comes to making the economy better by an 11 point margin. So I think Trudeau actually realizing that this is a, a, a problem on the supply side, that grocery stores are the one making the decision to raise prices on consumers. That's a good thing. I wish President Joe Biden would do that. Uh, especially when we see these grocery stores reaping record profits. They're not raising prices to account for additional supply-side costs that they incurred during the pandemic. Inflation started with a measure of price increases with essentials, things that people were purchasing at the grocery store. And so we really need to go and address this problem at its source. Show us your books. Why are these price increases justified? Or are they doing it simply because they can, because food is a necessity? That's a problem. That's not a functioning economy for everyday working people. So it makes sense that Canada is starting with the grocers. And I don't buy Katie Porter's pitch here that Biden's doing a great job on the economy. I agree that grocery prices definitely need to come down. However, even though profits are at a record high, we still see that the profit margin for grocers is only between two to three percent. So it's not like they're really jacking them up so much that they're simply doing it out of greed. I do think that there is, are lingering supply chain issues from the pandemic that would be better addressed by people like Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, as opposed to threatening to punish them financially, because we know what happens when we increase taxes on corporations. They pass that price onto the consumer. This is either only going to increase the cost of groceries for Canadians or Americans in the case of our country, or it's going to lead to greater shortages of goods, in which case people are going to have a difficult time buying the things that they need, just like we saw a couple of years ago, and, and this still persists today, but people unable to purchase goods like baby formula or going to the pharmacy and not having access to the medication that they need. Um, there's really nothing good that happens out of trying to tax your way through an issue that's a supply side issue. Yeah, I think uh, Trudeau made a, a good decision to not say we'll definitely raise taxes, but we'll consider it. Because I think what we're seeing right now is with the instability during the pandemic and with the decision that so many companies made to raise prices or not on consumers, we saw that these these grocers in the United States, if if it's what you're saying is true, that they're maintaining the same profit margins, uh, yet prices are going up. They're already pushing costs onto the consumer when they could be dipping into their profit margins to cover additional incurred costs. But what we're seeing is record profits without a major change in, in revenue in incurred costs when it comes to input costs, 
which at the beginning of the pandemic, we did see a lot of corporations paying increased input costs because of the trucking shortage, because we had supply chain disruptions. And so they did have an additional cost of doing business. But when that went away, they didn't make changes when it came to prices. They didn't bring their prices back down proportionally. And so when we think about what kind of a policy solution would incentivize grocers to address something like this, in the case of the United States, I think breaking up the monopoly that corporations like Kroger have on the food supply and an increased competition in the market when it comes to grocery stores and grocers. When you have this major consolidation of where people are getting their food, you have that one major grocer controlling the prices of food. And we've seen the antitrust department of this DOJ under the Biden administration uh, not be so active in the case of Ticketmaster, they kind of said, we're going to do something, we're thinking about it, and then not much policy come out of that. Just a little bit of transparency in their pricing structure. They have to tell you what their fees are for and how much they are before you get to the point of checking out. They didn't do anything to break up the monopoly. That's what the antitrust division is supposed to do. So I think that might be a more relevant policy response that won't push these costs onto consumers who can't afford them. Yeah, I think there's maybe an underestimation of how much the supply chain issues are persisting. There still is definitely a trucker shortage, for example. But I agree, a lot of the concerns have been alleviated in the past six months or so. And your point about antitrust is well taken. Um, there's sort of a double-edged sword with the way that we purchase our food in America, where we have access to so many out-of-season vegetables and so much uh, choice when it comes to the products that we purchase because of the fact that that grocery stores have gone corporate, but at the same time, we are subject, of course, to their pricing schemes. Whereas if you were, uh, you know, had the ability to shop more locally or shop smaller, you would see that produce would come from local farms, which would reduce prices, reduce the possibility for supply chains to be disrupted so aggressively. Um, and I'm definitely on board with trying to reduce monopolies in pretty much every industry. Um, but the grocery store one is one that I definitely agree with you on. On this Katie Porter statement, I just can't believe how out of touch this woman is. And we've talked about this before on the show, how the Biden administration has really downplayed the economic concerns of Americans. And when we hear from the American people through pretty much every poll that's coming out that they don't feel good about where they stand economically, they're concerned that the economy is going to get worse. They trust Trump way more than they trust Biden to handle the economy. They, they trust Republicans in general more than the Democratic Party to handle the economy. That's something that should prompt some reflection, some self-awareness. And instead, the Democratic establishment just doubles down and acts like Americans are crazy or what they're feeling is not real or, or not uh, justified. You even see the Biden administration imploring the media to make the case to the American people that the economy is better than it actually is. It's really a form of gaslighting of people who are there going through their budgets and making the payments, paying their bills, running the receipts from the grocery store. They know whether or not they're able to survive in this economy and for their government to turn around and say, you're wrong, is ridiculous.
I think there's a pretty widespread belief among, I think, members of mainstream media, among Democratic consultants, that the main problem with the United States economy is that there are things that cause instability that happen at the micro level that then grow into larger problems. But they generally start, you know, at the the point of the market and things go wrong. And then it's the federal government's response or uh, responsibility to address those problems. Rather, I would define the main problem with the instability, the constant boom and bust cycle that we have uh, is bad macroeconomic policymaking. Time and time again, you have an administration get into office and just continue business as usual without changing anything or even questioning the reasoning we have behind the macroeconomic policies that have governed our country for the past century. And so we have a Federal Reserve that will raise interest rates in response to the kind of inflation that is caused by, as you said, a trucking shortage. What would resolve that is if we invested in increasing you know, transportation, increasing our ability to move materials from A to B. And if we don't have a bank ready to give a business a loan uh, to invest in this part of the economy, this sector of trucking and transportation and transporting goods, then Congress should use their power of the purse to give that initial investment or business loan. This would accurately be a precise measure to address the inflation at its root cause rather than raising interest rates and quelling economic activity altogether, which then causes more inflation in the long run. And so I think people don't exactly have their finger on the pulse here when this issue is discussed. But I think as soon as we get a president and an administration that understands the supply side of inflation, we're going to see, you know, our federal government, Congress, the Fed, the Treasury, and the president be able to work in tandem to actually prevent these cycles of booms and busts that are just caused by bad macroeconomic policy. It's not this kind of reverse causality situation where you have the market creating instability and the government responding. They're creating the conditions for crashes and instability. We're going to have to leave it there. More rising after this. Financial Services Committee held a hearing on Capitol Hill yesterday called the Digital Dollar Dilemma, the implications of a central bank digital currency and private sector alternatives. Some notable points from the hearing. Democratic Representative Stephen Lynch introduced the eCash Act to help safeguard electronic currency. I'm announcing and inviting my colleagues to join the Congressional Digital Dollar Caucus. This forum will educate members on critical issues relating to the development, design, and potential implementation of a government-issued digital dollar. I plan to invite innovators, technologists, academics, and other experts to share their findings and development. I hope my colleagues will join me in this exploration. I should make it clear that I do share the concerns with some of my colleagues about the need for digital currencies that respect privacy and anonymity. The use of anonymous cash has plummeted and more of our transactions are occurring online and under surveillance, tracked and aggregated by financial services companies. Indeed, China has turned that fact into a tool of full-spectrum surveillance of its citizens. This is why I've introduced the eCash Act. This bill directs the Treasury to design and pilot a digital version of cash and would complement the Fed-issued CBDC. It would allow individuals to make instant peer-to-peer -peer payments with no consumer data or transaction tracking and without the use of a bank account. 
A central bank digital currency is a digital representation of fiat currency issued by a central bank using an electronic record to represent the fiat currency, in our case, the US dollar. Earlier this week, House Majority Whip Tom Emmer called the central bank digital currency a Chinese Communist Party style surveillance tool. Emmer introduced a bill against the CBDC at yesterday's hearing. Columbia Law Lecturer Raul Carrillo, who testified at yesterday's hearing and helped contribute to the eCash Act, joins us now to discuss the hearing. Thanks for coming on, Raul. Wonderful to be back, Jessica. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with this this concern that there's somehow more surveillance and this surveillance is malevolent when we have a digital currency. It's my understanding and it seems Lynch's understanding that we already have all kinds of consumer data collected by banks who control our transactions when we're transferring money through a digital interface, but also wherever we're purchasing things from, there's data collected uh, on the purchaser or purchasing side whenever you know we're purchasing something online or whenever we're using a credit card for a certain kind of payment. Is a digital dollar a way for the U.S. government to surveil our citizens? Thank you for asking the question. It really allows me to uh, break back into a mistaken assumption that I think undergirded yesterday's hearing. It's important to understand that today, yes, as you said, um, there's quite a bit of commercial data collection by banks, by credit reporting agencies, but even more so by um, data brokers, by fintech companies, by an entire new ecosystem that revolves increasingly around concentrated apps, which uh, collate and score our data in new ways. And the government uh, legally requires the private sector to share some of this data um, at particular points in time in a systematic fashion. At this point, it's almost automated. So when people say that the private sector affords privacy, That's not true because the government always stands in the back. In addition to the corporate surveillance, you necessarily have government surveillance because that's how mass surveillance works generally in this country post the Patriot Act. So they're being surveilled anyway, regardless of if you're making purchases with a private bank or you're using this kind of digital currency. Can you break down just a little bit? Uh, There's been some calls for some kind of private digital currency. To me, it sounds like they're referring to cryptocurrency, which has an entirely different function than a fiat currency issued by a central bank or the US dollar. Can you just talk about why the eCash Act is important? Sure thing. Um, So to build off the earlier comment, I don't, um, I'm not suggesting that there's not a capacity to use a CBDC or digital fiat currency for panoptic surveillance. Indeed, that seems to be the direction in which we are heading. Um, But it is important, again, to compare to the existing baseline. Surveillance can be different, but this also presents an opportunity for us to actually build financial privacy and data security within a new system. The eCash Act is supposed to complement the idea that we will have public bank accounts and other sorts of instruments, and it provides the digital analog to paper cash. So we would use that device, um, perhaps a card as big as a credit card or a debit card or a secured environment on your phone to tap and pay for things as we do today, but without producing data. Um, See the distinction here as being between say Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, an eCash device would operate on a different network off the internet, so it wouldn't create the sort of data that the private sector creates or that potentially public bank accounts could create. So in that sense, it is a even small C conservative proposal to maintain privacy and civil rights 
within an inevitable process, which is the expansion of digital fiat currency around the globe. Was there discussion at this hearing as well about ways to potentially scale back this surveillance partnership, um, as you were explaining, between the government and these private companies in terms of online and digital transactions? Um, I, I think from a Republican or conservative perspective, there's been a lot of talk, for example, around the fact that the government is able to track gun owners and some credit card companies have even refused to work with gun manufacturers or allow gun purchases at this point. So on the private side, what are some of the policy changes potentially being raised? Right. So this is a, a good point, and I appreciate you raising it, because I see contradictions amongst um, anti-CBDC opponents who or anti-CBDC uh, uh, policymakers who suggest that um, it, it is the fault of the public sector for requiring reporting that is the problem here. But in fact, the private sector continues to collect rich and increasingly sophisticated and granular data, knowing full well that it is going to hand that information over to the government when necessary. And indeed, Silicon Valley increasingly partners with government agencies, the data brokers in particular, to make sure there is data sharing. So the suggestion that stablecoin companies or that new crypto companies are going to come in and save privacy or data security for people is quite flawed. And indeed, we see, I think, the stablecoin companies in particular as um, moving toward um, national security interests. Crypto is not a cool party anymore when it comes to privacy and surveillance. You've got spies, you've got cops, you've got venture capital. It is not uh, conducted in the spirit that it once was. And the idea that the blockchain or crypto will somehow provide privacy either on its own or embedded in a government system is frankly quite wrong in terms of reality and the law. So when we think about moving forward, I, a lot of people have kind of done away with cryptocurrency. There was a bit of a, a crash just a year ago that I think a lot of people realized if we can't have this kind of stable coin that we can easily transition from, okay, I have my, my money in dollars, now I'm going to transfer it to stable coins and then from there purchase my cryptocurrency, bitcoins and the like. When they proved that they couldn't offer stability with the stable coin, I think a lot of people pulled their money out of cryptocurrency, but we didn't see it really as the end of it. How would moving towards having more fintech or digital currency infrastructure, you know, bring people away from putting their dollars in cryptocurrency or looking for currency alternatives that are unstable and don't replace the function of a fiat currency? Yes, thank you. Financial stability is a very important point here, um, especially when we're talking about comparing the um, the stable coins to potential digital fiat currency liabilities, whether those are CBDC or something else. Now, um, as you mentioned, crypto has crashed. Stable coins were at the center of that. An algorithmic stable coin uh, crashed um, leading up to the FTX bankruptcy and collapse. Of course, maybe the bigger problem is that uh, the stablecoin companies almost went down with Silicon Valley Bank, and they had their deposits um, in that bank, many of them uninsured. And if it hadn't been for the Fed, the largest stablecoin issuers, including Circle in particular, would have failed. So what this new technology and system offers is a chance for um, banks to have safe liabilities on their balance sheet provided by the Fed, and then to engage in credit and maturity transformation and do the things that banks do on the side. But we can make um, public support more explicit. We can stabilize banks 
in a way that would obviate, honestly, the need for stable coins, which are currently unsafe, precisely because they don't want to operate based on banking regulation. There's been some concern raised that a digital dollar could potentially be the first step towards extinction of the paper dollar, which would wipe out all uh, private transactions or truly private transactions, rather. Do you think that that's a realistic concern and something that might actually happen? So first of all, I support paper cash and um, across the board, the bans in municipalities are particularly troubling to me. Agreed. But I will say if your concern is defending cash, uploading it into the 21st century in the form of e-cash does preserve cash's status as a monetary instrument that we've had for thousands of years. And moreover, if you're really concerned about the war on cash, you should be opposing fintech and crypto, which are the lead um, sort of companies against the usage of paper cash precisely because they want to collect data. Can we just get you to briefly explain, Raul, uh, the difference between having money in a, uh, an account where you use a debit card to access it and using eCash? Sure, absolutely. So there are multiple forms of money that could deploy the digital dollar. Just as we use bank account money for some things today, um, we use you know, perhaps Venmo for something else, paper cash for another thing. There can be an entire public fintech infrastructure that includes a variety of different monetary technologies for different purposes. So when you use a um, Bank of America card, for instance, the data is transferred within a relatively closed network of parties. Increasingly, um, when you use fintech apps, there are parties you don't know about involved in the transaction. There can be 13 parties that have access or share access to your data, and you don't necessarily know about that. Now, what um, a public bank account can do is certainly restrict the sharing of that data, but there is always going to be a sense that data generated can be abused. What eCash does is, again, try to create an analog to the paper cash where you pull out, where nobody needs to necessarily know about your transaction. It's an everyday thing. Maybe you have a good reason for wanting privacy, but everybody should just be able to make payments simply. And so eCash, instead of transferring over a network that is centralized or decentralized in the case of blockchain, it instead transfers the money locally through the hardware device to device or device to payment terminal meaning that the data is never produced in a way that it can be abused. It's a sort of keep it off the cloud approach that is similar to a keep it in the ground approach in the climate justice movement. Thank you so much, Raul. This was incredibly informative. We appreciate you. More rising after this. The final three men to stand trial on charges related to a plot to kidnap Democratic Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer have been found not guilty on all charges. Eric Molitor and twin brothers William and Michael Knoll were among 14 men charged in state and federal court over the alleged plot. They were each acquitted on one count of providing material support for a terrorist act and possessing a firearm when committing or attempting to commit a felony. So it seems to me that this was the kind of a case, it was 14 days of testimony. All of these three guys look the same. You can hardly tell them apart. But, uh, you know, they're trying to determine where these key players in this kidnapping plot of Whitner, Whitmer following the 2020 election. And I guess they de either determined, you know, no, they, they weren't guilty of these things. Uh, a lot of people said that this was like a military 
style plan that they were working together and practicing with their guns. Uh, very scary stuff, but ultimately, I guess they were acquitted. Yeah, I mean, the issue here with these three particular guys is that they actually broke off from the group when it started to get more radical and actually discuss plans to kidnap the governor. But it's important to remember that this plot in the first place would not have existed without the FBI's interference. So basically what happened is if we go back to 2020, there were a few guys who were very isolated during the pandemic. They were perhaps unemployed. Some of them were using drugs and they would chat on this Facebook group about anti-law enforcement and anti-government sentiment. Certainly nothing illegal. But there was an individual who informed to the FBI about this group and suggested that there was something untoward happening or that these guys were going to become more radical. So what the FBI did is they actually employed uh, a dozen or more different agents as well as undercover agents to actually create new Facebook groups bring these guys in and be uh, responsible for their radicalization. It was the FBI informants who were working within this group who first brought up the idea to kidnap the governor. The, the FBI uh, was the one that brought up the idea separately of trying to assassinate the Virginia governor, who was uh, a Democrat at the time. They were the ones who suggested having the surveillance of Gretchen Whitmer's home. They were the ones who suggested having firearms training. I mean, every... Uh, escalation that occurred in this supposed plot of a radical set of Americans or right-wing extremists or domestic extremists was basically orchestrated by the FBI. And so there was a legitimate defense from the lawyers in this case that their clients were entrapped by the FBI. This did not fly with every defendant. There were some who were, in fact, found guilty because they were um, basically right in there with the informants in terms of becoming radical or helping to plan this attack against Gretchen Whitmer. One of them was even sentenced to 16 years. But there's definitely a great case to be made for some of these lower-level members of the group who were trying to get out of it. And actually, the group was set to dissolve um, after a few months, if not for the FBI bringing in a literal bomb expert to explain to them how they could successfully carry out um, explosive attacks on Whitmer's residence that they stuck together. Um, this should have never happened in the first place. If it weren't for the FBI's involvement, there would have been no plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. Yeah, I think it's a an interesting case that will have a lot of people reflecting on entrapment in general. How many times do we have cops go undercover and try and catch people who are purchasing and exchanging drugs? I mean, I'm just totally against any kind of undercover work by the police, by the FBI, by law enforcement in the United States. The way that they try and infiltrate groups that they deem to be troublesome seems to only escalate escalate the the supposed crime that's going on. And so I think it's a good time for everyone to reflect on what entrapment means, but also to reflect on the political climate post 2020, that there were these three guys, you know, the twin brothers and their buddy that were willing to attend these drills and show up to Whitmer's residence. I think it speaks to the political climate, which I think would have existed independent of what the FBI was up to. There was just this sense of hostility towards anyone who was upholding the 2020 election results and not questioning them in the Trump faction. And I think that makes a lot of people very scared for democracy, myself included, because while a lot of the people, Proud Boys and these folks included, they, they really seem like they have some sense of remorse, some sense that the election wasn't 
actually stolen, that they shouldn't have been up to what they were up to. But I think there's also a faction of people who still believe that the electoral process in the United States isn't sound and they don't believe in it and they would like to see change happen. And I think that's scary uh, when we think about the future of our democracy and what could happen in elections to come. My understanding is that the uh, concerns of this particular group were not really about election fraud or interference, but were more about the pandemic restrictions that were placed on them, especially because these were individuals who were already quite isolated and lonely and who had suffered job loss and mental health issues. So I think their opposition to Gretchen Whitmer was more about the pandemic and lockdowns than it was about the 2020 election. But that being said, another part of this case that I wanted to bring up is the fact that the FBI even used a honeypot situation where they had a female agent infiltrate the group and apparently sleep with one of the members who was one of the individuals who was described um, as, as being one of the ones who was particularly isolated. And apparently they also even worked to get these people high on drugs. So the lengths that they went to to really fabricate and create this idea or this plot is pretty incredible, obviously in a negative way. I don't mean that in a positive connotation. And you're right, this brings up broader questions about what the FBI's involvement is in helping to actually breed domestic terrorism. I mean, yes, we want the FBI to be involved in stopping terroristic plots or homegrown domestic terrorists. But at what point does their involvement actually make situations more volatile? We also know in this case that Gretchen Whitmer was apparently in on this plan. She knew that these suspects were going to be coming, or defendants rather at this point, that they were going to be coming to her vacation home to conduct their surveillance routines. She was aware of the date and time that these things were going to occur. Again, it was the FBI that set the date and time. So just the um, the extent of the infiltration, the extent of the undercover work by the FBI, the intentional manipulation of the defendants through drug use, sex, and uh, the attempts to radicalize them through this sort of feeling of brotherhood is incredibly disturbing. And uh, I, I think it's at least a little bit of justice that these three guys were able to be acquitted on these charges. I think the jury probably saw right through the government scheme. Yeah, I think the FBI on more cases than just this has overstepped and tried to quell radical organizing in the United States. We've seen the FBI's involvement in the move bombing in Philly. We've seen the FBI trying to infiltrate many groups across the country. And I think at the end of the day, if we're going to live in a country where we expect free speech and we expect people to maintain the right to organize politically, we can't have the FBI preemptively infiltrating every group that seems radical to try and quell discontent and you know maintain the status quo in the United States. I don't think anybody in the US, whether they're radical or not, feels good about the FBI acting in this manner. And I really think we need some more regulation of the FBI, whether that comes from Congress, whether that comes from the executive branch, or just a demand from the people. This should be more of a central issue than I think it is in the United States. We had that, you know, hashtag defund the FBI for quite some time, which is something that leftists have supported for a while. Should the federal government 
be investigating citizens to this degree in the name of national security. I just don't think so, especially when you have the police not preemptively investigating cases of stalking when it comes to women, not investigating potential murders, not investigating potential sexual assaults, but instead we have the FBI preemptively investigating political organizing. It just doesn't sit right with me that that's the priorities of our justice system. Exactly. I mean, the FBI dropped the ball in the Larry Nassar sex abuse case. They dropped the ball on Jeffrey Epstein because apparently they're too busy trying to coerce people into committing crimes. I mean, sure, there's an argument to be made that these guys might have radicalized each other and found each other without the FBI's intervention. But when we're talking about informants and, and, and undercover officers, we're talking about individuals who are trained to provoke certain responses, trained in uh, human behavior in ways that they can actually compel and coerce people into acting a certain way. And so if you have somebody who is a senior level FBI agent telling their undercover informant, here's what you need to say to this person so that they're on board with your plan, right? That's a serious problem. And that suggests that they were using intentional uh, psyop tactics to manipulate these people as opposed to just letting them go where they were necessarily going to go if the FBI were not involved. And that's obviously a serious problem. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, when we consider all of what was going on around the 2020 election, there was a lot of organizing. There were a lot of people that were led by misinformation. And when we think about what the government response could be is spending public dollars on surveillance, spending public dollars on entrapment, is that a good use of money? Or if we're concerned about people making good political decisions with all of the information potentially available, maybe we should be spending public dollars on things like education, on things like improving the electoral process. It just seems backwards to me. And almost like it's exacerbating the problem we have around political radicalization and people acting violently on political beliefs that end up being based in misinformation, that if that's the problem we're facing, perhaps we need to address this problem at its root cause and invest in election integrity, invest in increasing voters' ability to participate in elections, and investing in public education so that we have an educated base of voters who are more willing to participate in the political process. It just feels that this punitive approach uh, is just too little too late. You can't have the FBI infiltrating radical groups in the United States when there's a perfectly good solution on the table of addressing the problem at its root. And it seems that Congress is not interested in doing this on any policy. So it almost feels like just taking up dead space talking about it. But it's still incredibly important that we consider the problem in its whole and not just get so caught up on there are these three guys that seem on the fringes of society and seem very scary. And therefore, we're going to side with government entrapment. Uh, no, we have to really think about what's going on in our society as a whole and think about these folks as individuals who are operating to the best of their abilities with the information they have and the life they've been given. I think when it comes to a system of justice, especially talking about January 6, we can be a little bit too hard on people and lose sight of the bigger picture here. And so I think there's a better way forward than just criminalizing all of this behavior and putting them in jail.
Not to mention the fact that when the government does try to combat misinformation, they end up being purveyors of misinformation themselves, whether it was the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story claiming it was Russian disinformation or pushing the Russian collusion narrative against former President Donald Trump. And that only leads to a further decline in trust in institutions when people see that the government is working hand in hand with big tech companies to censor information that ended up being accurate. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Joe Rogan raises red flags for millennial and Gen Z women, according to Change Research polling firm. More than half of women, 18 to 34 years old, are alarmed if their partner tunes in to the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. The survey of 1,000 females also found that 53% were off-put if their partners refused to see the summer blockbuster, The Barbie Movie. Um, I, at risk of sounding like a pick-me here, I have the exact opposite reaction to both of those things. I wouldn't say that listening to Joe Rogan is necessarily a turn-on, but it definitely doesn't bother me. Uh, my fiancé listens to interviews on there all the time. I do think maybe being a religious listener where you just parrot everything Joe Rogan says is maybe a little bit concerning, but I feel that way about any media that a person consumes. And honestly, I would have felt weird seeing the Barbie movie with my fiance. Um, I just don't think that would have worked. For me, that is, that's, a, that's the girly pops that need to go see Barbie together. Yeah, I think this exposes the importance of how a polling question is worded, because I think sometimes when anyone hears, oh, they're a Joe Rogan experience podcast listener, they imagine his extreme fans. When I think about they won't tune in to the Barbie movie, to me, it's not just they didn't choose to see it. That really makes it sound like they hate it. They talk about how much they don't want to see it and how bad it is. I think the interesting thing about this poll as well is that 76% of women said that they would it would be a red flag if someone identified as a MAGA Republican. Now, I don't think that it would be a make America great again red flag. I think that means they would not be interested in dating the person if they were a MAGA <laughs> Republican. 76% is a really, really big uh, number there. So uh, we know that pretty homogeneously, Gen Z is progressive, millennials are more progressive than other generations, but it's interesting to see how this plays out across genders, across men and women, just the responses on this poll. Talking about politics frequently, uh, they asked about astrology on that front. Only 20% of women said that was a red flag, whereas 41% of men said that was a red flag. And then saying all lives matter and black lives matter was another really interesting response. 60% of women said a, a guy saying all lives matter would be a red flag, whereas 41% of men said so. And then black lives matter, 14% of women said that that was a red flag, 33% of men said it was a red flag. So the differentials there are very interesting. Yeah, we hear traditionally that men are more open to dating a woman who has opposite political beliefs than women are dating a man who has opposite political beliefs from them. Um, and I'm not sure exactly why that is, whether it's men are just looking for different uh different data points, I guess, when evaluating whether a, a woman's going to be 
a good partner. And I do think politics can sometimes speak to underlying values, but that's not necessarily always the case. But I think what's concerning about recent surveys we've seen about young people in dating is, especially among adolescent uh, men and women, you see that men are becoming more conservative, whereas women are becoming more progressive, more liberal. So if you do have a case where there's an increasing mismatch on politics and one group of people says they don't want to date people who are on the opposite side of the political spectrum, what does that mean for matching and pairing? What does that mean for marriage rates and down the line birth rates for the uh, younger millennial and Gen Z generation? Are they going to have a hard time getting into healthy, long lasting relationships? And what does that mean for our society as a whole? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. When we see political polarization reach the extreme to where, you know, if a couple meets and they're on their first date and they're talking about politics for whatever reason, I think, you know, maybe millennials and Gen Z are more open to doing so than older generations. But let's say you're talking about politics. It seems to me that the conversations are usually centered around pretty surface level issues without getting to the heart of the issue, which is what are your values and why did you ultimately arrive at that conclusion? I think being on the same page when it comes to morals, ethics and values is more important than agreeing on political issues on the surface or whether or not you listen to the Joe Rogan podcast. I think you made a good point, Amber, in saying, you know, people can turn tune into the podcast because he has really lengthy interviews with his guest and you might be interested in the guest. So I really think people need to talk more. And the main problem here is just dismissing people at the surface level, dismissing after you hear they listen to Joe Rogan, dismissing after you hear something that seems like it might not be aligned with your political faction. There's a lot of that. And I wouldn't even call it cancel culture. I'd just call it dismissiveness. Yeah, exactly. There seems to be a sort of rejection of a culture of free expression and free speech among a lot of Gen Z people. When you poll them, they have much higher rates than previous generations of being willing to shut down speakers that they disagree with. They think that hate speech should be illegal, and they generally don't have any interest in having real conversations with people on the other side of the political spectrum, which only increases the divisiveness that we're talking about. I also was thinking about, as we looked at this poll of the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago um, regarding Tim Pool and his panel's comments about women with high body counts and whether or not they should be shamed. And it's kind of made me think that there's kind of a political component to that because if a female generation is becoming more liberal, they're presumably also becoming more open on issues of sex and more, I guess, um, from a feminist perspective of sex being a tool for empowerment. And if men are becoming more conservative, they're going to be less likely to view women who do have that view on sex as being attractive partners, particularly for marriage. And so this only further contributes to this divide and this potential for this generation to have some of the lowest partnership and marriage rates in history. Yeah, I think that's an interesting one, especially when we had for such a long time a lot of pop culture and the dominant culture and media be men being hypersexualized, essentially. You know, the sexualization of women, of course, sort of talking about them like they're objects, wanting to see them in skimpy clothes, you know, rap music about things like this, rock music about things like this, and men being these beings that are always sexual but holding women to a different sort of a standard. 
I I think if the behavior changes along with the political views among men, I would be more sympathetic of that view. I think the problem with the the Tim Pool crowd is that they still expect men to be these promiscuous beings. Andrew Tate is definitely one of the people that holds this view, but women need to be more conservative in the way they they operate in that sphere. To me, that feels really hypocritical. And so I'd like to see more across the board thinking there, but it might push more women away if men have this double standard for themselves when it comes to the judgment of their sex lives and their behavior in that way. I think another element of it is the the changing views on gender and seeing the disparity in who would say that there's more than two genders here, 58% of women saying that uh, it would be a red flag if they said there are only two genders, whereas men said uh, only 34% of them said that it would be a red flag if their partner said there are only two genders. That's an interesting one as well. Uh, just the difference in views on transgenderism in the United States. Yeah, I guess I'm not super surprised to hear that. I mean, um, there's been some cases even where um, members of the transgender activist community have accused men of being transphobic for not wanting to date transgender women who are biological men and still have male genitalia. And I think that really hurts their movement, um, trying to make that argument. And perhaps men in particular feel quite attacked by that sentiment. That's going to do it for us with this edition of Rising Fridays. Jess, it was great to be with you again. Another good week. Back with Blue Collar Fridays, the two of us together. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next week. Bye, y'all.